gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. And today we are going to be talking about David Lynch, the American author of much renowned. I am Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. How are you doing? You'd better believe you are. I'm great. How are you? I'm similarly great. All my days. We're both great. Oh, isn't it great? It's great. And we're going to talk about a great man. A great man. <laughs> a, a colossus of uh, modern cinema, David Lynch. Yes, um, a colossus of insanity, yes. by all accounts. Yes, uh, uh, and, uh, the most distinctive individual director I think there is, certainly working at the minute. Uh, he is... Uh, in almost every sense of the word, inscrutable. Uh, you cannot pin this man down on anything. Um, mm. He's and he will not be facsimiled. I've yet to <laughs> see. Not. I've yet to see someone take on his style and succeed. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of history, in case you do not know the man. He uh, born in forty six. He started off his career looking as uh, looking more at the, the uh, visual arts. He was going to be a painter for some time before uh, dropping out, changing to uh, film school after an abortive attempt at. Uh, going across Europe. He has then, after some uh, smaller films, that his debut, which his debut feature film, Eraserhead, brought him to uh, international prominence. And he's gone on with a, a slew of film films after, one, after this. Not the most prolific director you'll ever see, but certainly he's produced some of the most distinctive works uh, oh. in, in American cinema over the past uh, three, four, five decades. <laughs> um, Pushing yeah. on for four decades now, yeah. 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 19, 1978, a razorhead, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about what makes this film so special. Uh, we're probably just going to take us uh, as it comes. We'll just run through his career, uh, more or less uh, chronologically, which will no doubt throw up a number of things. I mean, especially... We'll just dive in straight with the, the first film, uh, the, his first feature film, Eraserhead, which already has shown many of the hallmarks of the, the Lynch experience, if you like. Quite, and and yeah. how, and how. Yeah. Um, so shall I take it? Go. Yeah, Go. take it, boy. Um, Eraserhead, in which Jack Nance plays Henry Spencer, uh, an employee of a local printer's who lives his solitary life amongst an oppressive industrialist hellscape shot in muted black and white. Um, and you will know immediately by that sentence whether or not this film is going to appeal to you. <laughs> One day Henry answers the door of his apartment to Mary X, an ex-girlfriend, who invites Henry to dinner at her parents' house. Uh, once there, Henry is party to, amongst other things, a bizarre dinner of oozing baby chickens. Sudden amorous advances of Mary's mother and the revelation that Mary has in the interim betwixt the conclusion of her relationship with Henry given premature birth to his mutant child. If the first sentence didn't put you off, <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if you're still with us at the conclusion of the second. Uh, well, <laughs> basically what follows is an intensely unsettling and unhinged, uh, unhinged procession of events that begins with the strain placed on the now newlywed Jack and Mary's relationship uh, by the incessantly unsettled infant, progressing through occasional glimpses of the theatre stage, apparently hidden behind Henry's radiator. <laughs> Scenes of an astral body tumbling through the void and interacting with fetus-like organisms. Sparse conversations in the hallway betwixt Henry and his sultry neighbour. And occasional sojourns into the decaying cityscape through which Henry ambles, often chaplain-like, I felt, mm. to the constant strains of a noise-driven ambience that unsettles and infuriates in equal measure. 
If all of that sounds indecipherable to you, then that's because Lynch's <laughs> debut feature is uh, a maniac's manifesto <laughs> that begins under a layer of abstraction and spirals increasingly into unfathomable insanity with each progressive frame. <laughs> Unlike Lynch's later movies where he breaks his audience in more subtly, a razorhead kind of asks you within 30 seconds, are you on board with this? Yeah. And while that's a question posed by most of Lynch's movies, I also feel like most of them wait at least 60 seconds before setting out <laughs> that stall. Um, it's kind of, it's long revered as the quintessential midnight movie, which is which is where it sort of garnered popularity. Lynch spent something like six years yeah. making this film. At least five, yeah. Yeah, at least five Um during which process his director of cinematography died. <laughs> um, whether or not that's related directly to the <laughs> film, I'm not sure. One in the world of Lynch, nothing is uh, nothing is impossible, and it sort of garnered this massive, massive cult status through midnight movie showings before it became, or rather, it asserted itself as as a classic of modern cinema. You will know within five minutes whether you are going to need a second pass at this, and I most certainly do. Certainly, before I feel mm. even remotely qualified in passing judgment. I feel like I came to a Razorhead with a huge burden of expectation. It's one of those touchstone films that really kind of defines the modern lexicon of cinema. And uh, based on based on my enjoyment of a great deal of Lynch's other works to to varying degrees, I assumed that I was going to come to a Razorhead and immediately click with it. Yeah, and it is by far his most outlandish movie. I think, it, if anything, it suffers from this is my first film and I'm going to throw every idea I've ever had at the screen um, syndrome. But I really, I didn't engage with the Razorhead. I'm going to be honest. I don't feel like I enjoyed it this no. on this first viewing. And you know, it sounds yeah, it sounds like you might be in agreement. Yeah, it's, it's easily the hardest of Lynch's films to watch. And given what else this man has done, that is actually saying something. Well, yeah. um, it is a film I have struggled to engage with on a number of occasions. It's I believe I first picked up a copy of this uh, sometime during my student career, uh, having seen some of his rather more accessible stuff at that point. Uh, and given the reputation like yourself, I was expecting it to be you know, something really quite special. But I found quite a lot of it to be actually a bit dull. Uh, mm. I, I, I found it very difficult to engage with anything at all. It's one of the few times I've just admitted defeat and stopped watching it. Uh, indeed, until a few days ago, I hadn't watched it all the way through to the end. Uh, oh. Twice, at least, than I clearly remember, I've started watching this with all good intentions and just given up after forty minutes or so. Uh, this last time was the I felt compelled to watch it all the way through to the end, but I don't really think it's uh, either enlightened me a great deal or has uh, really enhanced my enjoyment of it. It's if you're. There's a very common uh, position that you could take about David Lynch, and that is that his films are nonsense, right? There's, <laughs> there is. I mean, it's hard to argue against. Yes, I mean, right? You can. It's of course aided by this ethos because he is so impenetrable. He will not give any information away. He doesn't even. Talk, yeah. He doesn't like talking about his films. I mean, exactly. Read about not him, least, not least of all, right? Because when approached about it himself, more often than not, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, eh. "Yes." And you know, he's he's one of these characters. I mean, he. He doesn't like talking about pretty much anything. He, he, I believe he's some early. Uh, it's, I was reading something about his earlier years. He, he he almost didn't talk for the first twenty years of his life. He's you know very minimalist in what he tries to say, and that obviously comes across in all the dialogue and throughout his work uh, works. But it's especially prevalent here. Uh, a great many elements in his films are 
just simply not, never explained. They're inexplicable in the the very real sense of just there is there is no way this would happen. This could happen. There's no logical explanation for any of it, and it's not a f- films that are based on logic. But we're, you can't we're use spend that as a, a lot tool. of this. No, of course, we're yeah. going to spend a lot of this podcast talking about dream logic, yes, which is the thing that he sort of evokes the most. But this isn't so much of a, a dream as a as a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly pictured more as some sort of well, I mean, it's it's psychological horror, I guess, more than anything else, mm. because there's very few things that are outright scary apart from just this unsettling, yeah. unnerving tone that's created in, in quite effectively in several places. Uh, but it's it's not enough to really hang the rest of the film on, and it is. To outre for the rest of it. There's so much. There's so much things going on that that just kind of bring you out of it. That 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 work against the the kind of oppressive nature that that's trying to build up in places where I think it might be more effective. Uh, there's too I, many I silly wanna... bits. There's too. I don't know why yeah. there's a. I don't know why there's a theater between the the radiator and there, and I don't know why there's a woman that looks a bit like a hamster singing there. And I don't. There's so just things that are thrown in that have no. No meaning uh, and no symbolism or anything like that. And for that, I know, one, it's a bit weak. And I know that the the sort of the accepted reading of this is that it's about Lynch's fear of of becoming a father, which is kind of poo pooed by the fact that he was a, he was a father before he started producing this. So perhaps more a, a reflex to having become a father and a fear of of fatherhood. And I can kind of get where people are coming with that. But with anything that David Lynch does, like say, he refuses to engage in discourse around any of his films, and, and on any number of occasions has basically said it's whatever you want it to be. And if if he himself refuses to define his movies as anything, it's very very difficult to accept any one particular notion of what it's supposed to be. Yeah, um, you're really taking everything on faith. I mean, I mean, the opening of this movie. I've made I made notes as I was watching this, right? And I I, I would also um, I would also uh, give you the caveat that when I say I didn't really engage with this movie, I was watching it on an iPad, which is it's never going to be the the most ideal situation to watch a movie in. Yeah, and I'm sure one um, that Lynch is specifically called out against doing on many occasions. He's a- yes, exactly. <laughs> so I will I will pay this film the courtesy of going back and watching it on uh, on a on a bigger screen. Um, but literally, like six minutes of nothing for an opening. It could could be a meteor spinning through space. It could be David Lynch's lunch. Um, <laughs> either way, I and probably he himself would implore you not to think too much about it. It's like like a lot of his other cinema, and actually, actually more. I feel like he kind of does a bit of a leapfrog from this, and he comes back around. He sort of he sort of goes to a slightly tamer material for a lot of his studio stuff, and then sort of comes back to this more pervasive sort of dream environment in more recent films but you you will always you will always find that a david lynch film seems to be going for atmosphere or certainly in most cases anyway um where he hasn't adapted his work from from other material there's this there's this sense of there's this atmosphere that i feel he's trying to aim for in a lot of his films and the difference with the Razorhead is that it seems to want to attack you with that atmosphere rather yeah. than envelop you in it. It, it it's like he wants it to be this thing there's there's this pervasive background audio all through the film that's a sort of industrial mishmash of, of noise. And like sometimes it resolves itself visually. Like there's a sound that sounds like someone tuning in a radio to like a just off station that's broadcasting solely screeching bats. And that <laughs> that turns out to be a litter of pups suckling at their mother's teat, right? And then other times it doesn't. 
such as like throughout the early part of the film where he's in, uh, I want to say in his own apartment and uh, or possibly possibly just his girlfriend's apartment or his ex-girlfriend's parents' house, there's there's this background noise which sounds, I've made a note here, it sounds, sounds akin to a woman being tortured at the far end of a mile-long copper pipe. <laughs> it's... It's this really, it, it like he really wants to unsettle you with this, and he's throwing this stuff at you and trying to. And I almost feel like he overbuilds the atmosphere in this one, and I, like I, I almost like completely disengaged from it because it was too dense and it was too oppressive. Yeah, it's a hard ask. Um, in all the ones that of sort of a similar ilk that I enjoy, you're you're eased far more gently into it, and it has a time mm. to kind of creep up around you, and you're. It's at its best when it sneaks up on you, and you don't really, uh, you're not aware of what's going to the thing that's about to unfold until it's already too late and you're already sucked into it. Whereas this is just slamming head first into a brick wall from the first frame. Yeah. And it's it's a hard ask. Um, hmm. It's Now, I've got to say, I don't like Eraserhead. I don't think it's uh, anything like his best work. However, as a historical document and as a, a manifesto hmm. of what he's going to do, it's certainly important. Uh, you can see an awful lot of things in here that he'll return to time and time yep. again. Um, yeah. Arguably much better. However, it's uh, certainly, you can't argue the fact that he's uh, setting out his stall early on in his career and showing you exactly what he intends to do when he gets uh, autonomy to do it. Yeah. Uh, and don't get me yeah. wrong, there are bits of this that works, but where I, where I find it tends to work the best are in the slightly more subtle interactions, like the... Um, if you put aside all the sort of perverse imagery that permeates this, the the couple of exchanges that he has with his neighbour across the hall, mm. who's this amazing, like stunning woman who is who I, I it's so difficult to define, but the inter, his interaction with her is really subtle, and there's this almost menacing tone uh, to the way in which she's. Yeah. It's, uh, the best way I can describe it is like a menacing sexuality. Yeah. To the way that she engages with him, and very like this woman is only ever lit by apparently a single candle. Yeah. Like if you're, if you, <laughs> I'm trying. I was trying to think how to describe it earlier, and the only way I can think is if you're a fan of film photography and you know anything about Ansel Adams' uh, zone system, this woman is exposed constantly at zone two. <laughs> if you understand that, there you go. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. This really strange, and there's there's a very when he's being subtly unnerving like that in in um, Henry's uh, interaction with um, with his neighbour, I find it's more successful than when he's throwing the oblique imagery at, at the screen. There's obviously, I mean, the the the, the mutant child is is obviously its own thing and it's like indecipherable. Yeah, um, absolutely. But but the the sort of constantly repeated imagery of the sort of the the theme of the theta, the fetus. The, as you mentioned, like on the stage, there's a there's a, a performance which is repeated to varying degrees um, by a young woman with bizarrely puffed out cheeks, <laughs> who I kind of I almost want to say that I almost took away from it that she was supposed to be his daughter or like his child, were it to develop to adulthood or something like that. I don't. That is a wild guess on my part. But the stuff like that, like the bizarreness of there being a, a, a theatre stage behind his radiator and stuff, it's just, just, it's just far too oblique. Um, yeah, it's, it's partly what I find infuriating in the Lynch films that I don't like is that it's, it's so open ended to interpretation that it, mm. you know, and by design, this could mean anything. But because it could mm -hmm. mean anything, it actually means nothing. Yeah, and I get a lot of it is it, it's. 
it's like an entire film full of symbols that, but not symbolic of anything, just symbolic in in general. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really wind up saying anything at the end of the day. But, um, it's a great thing to analyze. I mean, it's almost like it's bait for um, you know film criticism classes because you can go to town on almost any Lynch film with any interpretation yeah. you like. And to be fair, it's probably you as valid as anyone else's. Down for it. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, yeah. but it's. It, it it doesn't help. Um, in a lot of ways, I am quite a traditional film goer. I like stories. I like stories to have beginnings, middles, and ends that more or less tie up. And mm. for an awful lot of things in June, uh, sorry, in uh, David Lynch's uh, work, you're not going to get that. You're you're going to get something that, is, that can make more sense on emotional levels rather than narrative. And some the best of his films achieve that. And when it does manage to have all that tied together, it works fantastically well and better than you know almost any other bit of cinema you'll see. But when it when it whiffs, uh, it becomes a big steaming pile of nonsense. And it's very easy at some point for your brain just to go, nope, not playing with this anymore. And just, just watching it for the objective nonsense that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean that particularly pejoratively, but it is. it doesn't make sense. Sense uh, <laughs> and a razorhead skin of the, the poster child for me for that. It, it doesn't I'm, make sense. I'm reassured, but I kind of knew that. I mean, we haven't discussed this previously to to now, um, and I'm, I'm reassured, but I kind of knew that you were going to feel the same way about <laughs> it. For like for the handful of films that we've we've disagreed on over the years, I I knew you were going <laughs> you were going to agree with me on a razorhead. It's very much its own thing, and and more power to him for setting out his manifesto so so clearly in the first place. But yeah, it's kind of, it feels kind of like oversaturated thematically yeah. and it's just it's abstraction upon abstraction and it's one of those you it's almost impossible to even begin unpicking it yeah. um but as you say it's very much um you know as uh, as a as an object of interest in terms of plotting out this guy's career is as an essential piece of his canon and yes. um you can't really talk about lynch without talking about a razor head and well we've done that now <laughs> there you go uh, that would move you on to 1980s Elephant Man, which is a entirely different kettle of fish. Uh, another criticism, perhaps, it's level that Lynch is that you know, the man can't tell a, a straight story or anything like that, which, is, of course, was the lead-up to the film that we'll talk about later on, Straight Story. However, I think when you start levelling things like that at Lynch, you, you kind of have to completely disregard Elephant Man which is not only a brilliant film, I really like Elephant Man, but it is, in almost every term, uh, entirely conventional. I mean, unless you're of the opinion that uh, it's perhaps a bit deliberately quirky shooting a film in 1980 in black and white, but that is really the only element of... uh, the film that I would say that is even slightly non-standard, if you like. It's uh, a tale of uh, a man with a severe physical dis- dis- disfigurement, uh, John Merrick, who was being uh, shown as a uh, in Victorian times as a uh, circus freak. He is happened across by Anthony Hopkins' doctor, who of course finds him a fascinating specimen and uh, this, uh, extracts him from this, uh, this life, takes him to hospital and kind of makes a, a study on him and to a large extent winds up kind of exhibiting him um, for, for his own benefits as he's kind of becomes a bit of a sensation in London society at the time. But of course, it's a, a far far more uh, pleasant life and he has a, a far better thing for uh, certainly in terms of John Merrick's uh, physical well-being and mental well-being as he kind of takes him from well as he says from being an animal to being a human being uh, as 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 the kind of his arc goes in this film uh, it is entirely conventionally told and uh, 
an incredibly good film. It's an incredibly enjoyable film. It's a, a nice, uh, a sort of understandable message. It is uh, has so many good, great performances in it. Um, it has you know a brilliant uh, performance from John Hurt, probably his best. Uh, even even underneath all that uh, prosthetics, he, he does incredibly well in this. And Anthony Hopkins is probably more likable in this than he is in you know, nearly any other film. Uh, <laughs> so many great performances in there, and even you know there's some. You'll start to see some people who will, you know, come through many uh, films in the future, like Freddie Jones. It's even got a, a, an enjoyable turn from Boone, Michael Elphick, uh, of all people. Uh, yes, yeah, so hi ho, Silva. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's a a really great film. It's if you're going to argue with anything, then if if you're talking about it in the terms of Lynch's career arc, then it's not like too many other things that he's done. It's uh, far more conventional. But that doesn't make it any less of a good film, so I heartily enjoyed am, am it. Am I am I correct in saying no? I haven't I haven't watched Elephant Man yet. Um, to my eternal shame, because when we were kind of looking through the back catalogue, I, I prioritised the more overtly Lynchian films yeah. over stuff like Elephant Man and Straight Story because I knew I wouldn't have time to watch them all. But having read a little bit about the history of Elephant Man, is this the movie that Stanley Kubrick asked him to direct? Am I correct in saying Kubrick asked him to do this? He was approached by <laughs> he was approached by George Lucas to direct one of the Star Wars movies, and he was also approached by Stanley Kubrick, I believe, to direct this. And uh, surprisingly, he said no to George Lucas. <laughs> I want to I want to say that's correct trivia, but your silence suggests that you were unaware right. of this. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say I can back it up with paperwork. Yeah, not something that's uh, uh, not not something I'm aware of. But uh, regardless of that, I think it's. Uh, it is a good film. Uh, there is, as you say, not a great deal of Lynchian aspects to it, if you're going to go down, if you're going to call it that. He, that shouldn't dissuade from the fact that, you know, here's a, a guy that can do a very competently produced uh, adaptation of a play, I believe this was. Uh, mm. But it, it's just very well paced. It's very well shot throughout. It looks really great. Um, black and white uh, is, I don't know, I guess something of a... A stylistic choice, but it works incredibly well for this film. Uh, it lends a, a nice air to it. There's no departures in the dream logic or anything like that. It's uh, just a mm. very sensible film. One more or less historically accurate than not exactly, but you know, close enough for government work. And uh, yeah, it works incredibly well. It's something that's, that's really good to, to watch. Just if you if you if you are used to him, just basically being the kind of out there, Mulholland drivisms of his, of his work. Then this is uh, just 180 degrees removed from that. It's uh, a very conventionally but incredibly well uh, well told story. It shows that he's not just someone who is you know producing the first nonsense that comes into his head. If if he if he needed to, he could competently tell a, a story straightly and and very very well, very uh, you know as good as any other director could possibly have done. So it's it's something to to watch if you ever know, if you ever think that this guy is perhaps just a charlatan who's who's getting away with uh, some a lot of things that he perhaps shouldn't be. This is a a good reminder that no, you know, he's a really good director who can you know on a on a, on a conventional field with anyone else can do just as well as any other director, and it's important on that basis. And it's also important just for being a very good film, which uh, rightfully won him clutches of awards, uh, which is a you know, very good to see for someone, especially given how early he was in his career, has got to be a great boost for him too. Yes. 
Indeed. And then I suppose normally at this point we would probably talk about June, right? But we do you want to talk a little bit about well, that? Because we're going yes. to do a separate podcast commentary, aren't we? Yeah, I'm looking forward to the commentaries. Uh, one of the other things I was thinking about with uh, when we were talking about doing a David Lynch film, uh, the David Lynch podcast, is that he's a guy who's done probably the widest range of films for any one director that I can think of. You know, he's done really bad films that I hate. Or I consider bad films. He's done films mm-hmm. that I would consider good that I don't like. He's done films that are bad that I do like. And he's done a lot of films <laughs> that I just don't care about in the slightest. He's, he's <laughs> in all four quadrants. Yeah, he's, he's all over the shop. Um, for, okay, often for exactly the same reasons. Uh, he's, he's such a hard guy to pin down. Uh, but June is one of the, is the bad film that I nonetheless like, but it is important to point out that it is a bad film. Um, also worth mentioning in passing, if you've not seen the excellent documentary Jodorowsky's Dune about uh, mm-hmm. Alejandro Jodorowsky, I think it's, uh, forget his first name actually, but um, his, yeah, Alejandro. Yes, his, his attempts to uh, bring uh, Dune to life uh, before it was passed on to Lynch is uh, well worth watching, which uh, you know, cheated us from the, the goal of uh, Space Prince uh, Andy Warhol. Uh, instead, we got to Lynch's vision, which isn't any good at all, um, it largely suffers from. It, it's not too desperately far away from the book, but it doesn't explain an awful lot of the things that happen in the book. So, if you've read the books, you probably have a, a decent idea of what's going on. But if you've not, you will have no clue what's going on mm-hmm. in this. Uh, it's, he's gone on record as saying it's a film that kind of got away from him when the studios started taking too much, uh, too much uh, involvement in what gets get shown on the screen and it just didn't really work it was a colossal failure it was one of the most expensive films to make and it flopped quite badly um, oh. critically did equally poorly it uh, has you know it's for a number of reasons that it's a mess of a film um, and it obviously was a bit of a a, a real hit to his career uh, as becoming something bankable because after the elephant man did quite well uh, this was uh, seen as a a real, real failure. A real, real falling flat in his face when he was given such a big budget to do to do something that was, you know, essentially kind of cashing on the Star Wars craze that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go into more depth of that at the time, but I think the the main thing to take from June is he was given an opportunity to spend an awful lot of money making something, and I think still think it has some merit, but yeah, it, it did not fare well critically or commercially. And, uh, and, I, and I'm looking forward to podcasting that commentary immensely. Yeah. I've never watched Dune. I'm aware of the sort of touchstone moments that have um, <laughs> yes. permeated popular culture, such as Sting floating about in a giant nappy. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I mean, having only read about a third, I think I got about a third of the way through uh, Frank Herbert's novel before um, I packed it in and never went back to it. Um, not for any reason other than the fact it was just, I, I found it quite. Um, quite tough going not that i wasn't enjoying it uh so i'm quite intrigued yeah. to see what uh, lynch did with this because i'm aware of the fact that it's it's held aloft as an example of bad filmmaking yeah, um, yeah. and a director going off the rails slash too much studio involvement etc so yeah. I, I cut yes. it a lot of slack because i really like the book um but i've got a bad habit of doing that i mean i i couldn't even bring myself to properly hate the first judge dread film because i love judge dread so much and even yeah that was abysmal but uh yeah, I have kind of the same relationship with June. It's not a, by no means a good film, but nonetheless, it's one that I enjoy. Uh, 
when you move past that, you get into uh, a couple oh. of years later, 86, Dennis Hopper sh- showing up in blue velvet. Um, Indeed. One of yours. Yeah, yeah no, it's, and, and to <coughs> many people remains um, Lynch's masterpiece. Um, one of the great cinematic explorations of the flip side to small town America's suburban dream, where below perfectly manicured picket fenced lawns, monsters lurk, plying their ugly trade. Um, Kyle MacLachlan is Jeffrey Bowman, a college student who returns to quaint Lumberton to take the reins of the family hardware business when his father's uh, collapses on one of said lawns. Jeffrey, by chance, stumbles upon a severed human ear, as you do which he brings to the attention of local police detective John Williams, uh, played here by George Dickerson, if I remember correctly. Unsatisfied by Williams' reluctance to share progress on the ensuing investigation, Jeffrey takes a cue from the detective's daughter Sandy, uh, Laura Dern's first uh, appearance in a Lynch movie, and that leads him to sultry nightclub singer Dorothy Valance, played by Isabella Rossellini, and in turn her abusive, psychopathic, maybe boyfriend Frank Booth, uh, Dennis Hopper, as you have already mentioned. As Jeffrey's investigation turns to the unhinged Booth, he becomes dangerously sexually involved with Dorothy, kickstarting a chain of events that belie the true nature not just of Dorothy's relationship with Frank, but of her masochistic self, and propelling the young would-be sleuth on something of a brutal, accelerated coming of age. And again, there are various interpretations, various readings of uh, Blue Velvet, but it is one of the more accessible uh, of Lynch's films. I will, I will grant him that. Uh, it is a coming-of-age movie. It's also a deconstruction of suburbia. And in many respects, it's also the Hardy Boys meets Nine and a Half Weeks. <laughs> it is, <laughs> it's got a lot of vibes going on. But it's been some time since I've, uh, I last watched Blue Velvet, actually, and I was at the time unimpressed, as I remember. Um, you're probably talking about my later teenage years, and I was still just sort of developing my critical faculties at that point. Um, but I have to say that on this viewing, um, uh, which was earlier today as it happens, uh, something clicked, and I really found myself um, enjoying it. It's almost played straight if you subtract the sort of brief weirdness at the beginning and the very final act um it's very, very close to just a conventional film. It's more of a mystery that happens to involve massively eccentric characters than Lynch's traditional uh, dream reality that we spoke about before. Um, and it's much easier, I think, for a general audience to relate to. And I can understand why a lot of people find this to be the sort of um, the ideal bridge between the very Lynchian material of something like a razor head and the very, um, the very sort of, I suppose, in Lynchian terms, the narrow spectrum of of his uh, his straight films like Elephant Man and Straight Story. But I'm guessing you've got something to say about that. Well, Blue Velvet is roughly, I would consider it part of a loose trilogy with uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, and to my mind, it's. Uh, probably the least successful of them. I, I don't dislike Blue Velvet, but I really can't get behind it. I, I have really got one major problem with Blue Velvet, and it's Dennis Hopper. Um, mm. I, I find his scenery chewing just to completely ruin the mood of any film. I just cannot take 
Dennis Hopper in this film seriously he does, at all. He does over-egg it a little bit here, if, doesn't he? If he had toned it down a notch or two, then he would be a you know a really menacing and creepy character that would uh, you know, really propel that sort of last half of the film along and really sort of crank up the, the tension and uh, the, the dramatic nature of that. But he's not. He's a clown, and I don't take him seriously at all. Uh, and it's, if anything, it, most of the film, as you say, is played quite straight, which makes the moments where it isn't all the more off-putting. Uh, I'm uh, thinking, uh. I'm thinking, in particular, there's, there's one scene towards the end, just after you get out of the car, where um, it's the it's the one time where Dennis Hopper is actually being properly menacing without going over the top when he's sort of just uh, you know getting right up in uh, Kyle McLaughlin's face and it would yep. be a tremendously you know really powerful scene if it weren't for the fact that some random woman was jumping up and down in a car in the background for <laughs> no logical reason and it ju- it's just moments like that that just really really drop drop you out of this and make you kind of it's, and, it's, and, it's those and, moments and where you just realise oh yes I'm watching a film aren't I and Dennis Hopper's goons as well, sort of this the overtly Lynchian sort of sides sideshow characters who pop up sort of throughout who are peppered throughout his films mm. are all attributable to Dennis Hopper's gang in this. So Jack Nance um, from a Razorhead who 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 was in just about every Lynch film I think up until the point at which he he passed away um, is one of Dennis Hopper's goons. Um, yeah, and you know and the other guys that hang about they're all sort of clubbed together and they're just this sort of. They are, and Hopper's obviously the most overt example, but they are just this sort of little cloud of insanity that, that hovers about around the movie and, and intervenes at points where otherwise, yeah, it would be far more easy to take seriously. And as you say, it would, they do serve to kind of remove you from the... Uh, remove you from the experience somewhat when they do pop up and start chewing the scenery, as you say. Yeah. Um, perhaps a notable, I think, in this instance for his... Uh it's probably the, the best. It's where you start to see the importance of the music in uh, Lynch's films as well. Um, it's the start of his uh, long collaboration with Angelo Badamenti, but even just the use of things like the Blue Velvet, the Roy Orbison track, uh, sorry, the uh, Bobby Vinton track and the Roy Orbison and Dreams track that's there that, that really are used to enhance the mood um, by taking something familiar and subverting it. Uh, which is something that we'll, that we'll use quite a bit as well, I think, uh, in later films and previous to this. Not that there's not been effective use of music, uh, but it's uh, mm-hmm. it's not been quite so uh, twisted as he starts doing it from here on out. But yeah, I just don't find it a particularly enjoyable film, uh, and it's it, it falls between those two stools. It's it's there's too much silliness in there to really take it seriously as a straight film, and it it's not uh, it's not surreal enough to start layering alternate interpretations onto it. Uh, mm. You can you can make a pass at it and you'll have some success, but I don't think it really holds a lot of scrutiny. Uh, it's, it's by no means bad, uh, but I think that it's nothing like as successful as a lot of people claim it to be, in my mind. Mm. Um, it's... It, it's it, it's interesting. It's certainly well worth watching, but it doesn't really do it for me. Uh, it's a bit of a shame. Uh, I'm not so yeah, not so much of a shame. I I mean, I still have a clear favourite Lynch film, and this is not it. But I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it this time round. Um, I obviously I must I, I get the impression I probably enjoyed it more than yourself, but I do yeah. absolutely agree with the points that that you uh, you make that you found detracting. Um, I, 
probably it's safe to say they detracted me less. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, Dennis Dennis Hopper is a is, is a problem in this movie, and I can't help but feel it's just that thing of you know Dennis Hopper probably refusing to be directed any other way yeah. than he wanted to be. Hopper's gonna hop. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's not known for his restraint <laughs> in many films. No. But, you know, it, no. it, it doesn't work here. It really, I don't think it works at all. No, it doesn't. And probably if we move on then to Wild at Heart, nineteen ninety. Um, yes. Sim- similarly, um, one of Lynch's most linear movies, albeit in the sense that I suppose someone like Robert Mugabe could be described as marginally less unhinged <laughs> than, say, Hitler was. Um, <laughs> ostensibly, it's a, a Lovers on the Run Road movie and sees Nick Cage's uh, character Sailor and Laura Dern's Lula. Uh, Laura Dern making a welcome return on the run from Lula's oppressive mother Marietta, played with suitably histrionic abandon or hopper-like abandon, shall we say by Diane Ladd it opens at a function where Marietta's drunken advances towards Sailor have been spurned and a hitman abruptly paid to rub Sailor out at the end of a flick knife, which seems harsh but not as harsh as Sailor's response which is to <laughs> cave his assailant's head in against the cold marble floor of the venue in graphic detail <laughs> sometime later after a stint in Choky Sailor emerges and immediately breaks parole to go on the run to California uh, with Lula uh, not to be deprived of her daughter so easily Marietta hires a number of characters to track and kill Sailor not least of which are Calvin Lockhart and Grace Zabriskie's deranged sexually charged duo Reggie and Juana both of whom are invoked at the behest of Marietta's criminal lover, Marcellus Santos, played by, uh, with great gusto by J.E. Freeman, and Marietta's other lover, Johnny Farragut, a private detective played by good old Harry Dean Stanton. Always a pleasure to see Harry. Lynch works in plenty of trademark bizarre characters along the way. Uh, it must be said, none of whom have any bearing on the plot whatsoever until we arrive in the two-horse Dust Bowl town of Big Tuna whereupon we meet Willem Dafoe's scenery-chewing alter-ego, Bobby Peru. (laughs) Which I think (laughs) might be my favourite character name from any Lynch film. (laughs) Bobby leverages Sailor's lack of cash in the recent revelation that Lula is carrying their child to coerce Sailor into accompanying him on a doomed criminal venture, leading us into the movie's final act. There was a time in my misspent youth when I saw this movie late at night on BBC Two and I loved it. But now, with the benefit of two decades of hindsight and more roundly developed faculties, I share more in common with the sizable group of critics who booed the movie when it was awarded the Palme d'Or at Cannes that year. Um, I tend, I tend to, t- I tend to find myself more on their side of the fence now. In the wake of an opening that promises much, Wild at Heart quickly devolves into a somewhat repetitive, senseless shambles of valueless sexual dioramas, needless character exposition and forced nods to oblique Lynch tropes that I kind of feel were crowbarred in in order to remind the audience that this is a Lynch movie. Yeah. Um, nowhere does this jar so much as in the conclusion to Sailor and Bobby's robbery attempt and the <laughs> resulting denouement, which, um, which final act feels as though Lynch has completely given up and is almost openly mocking his audience. Opinions are obviously going to vary, but I sense that in developing someone else's source material to fit his own mould, Lynch perhaps lost sight of what he was trying to achieve. And the end result serves, if I'm honest, I feel like it serves less in breaking genre conventions and more to remind us why they exist in the first instance. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not so down on Wildest Heart as you are, but it's not a good movie on a number of levels. 
Um, I'm just distracted as the, the best single sentence summation on IMDb that I think I've seen for any film is just summed up as young lovers Sailor and Lula run from the variety of weirdos that Lula's <laughs> mum has hired to kill Sailor. Which is, <laughs> I was, I was looking at that earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, Way to distill it. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it is daft and I think what saves it for me is that it's daft and it's, uh, it is very clearly not taking itself seriously. No. Um, I mean, it's the sort of film that Again, it is almost the sort of film where if you'd put a different soundtrack on this, you could probably sell it as a serious Lynchian, you know, you know, dream logic trope thing going on. But it, it, it's not. It's quite clearly got a sense of fun and is not taking itself remotely seriously. And that saves it from, well, certainly it saves it from me getting particularly wound up about how daft it is. And it is daft. Uh, <laughs> Willem Dafoe, what are you doing? Um, I listen so in the things. in the same way that Dennis Hopper's scenery chewing mm. took the edge off Blue Velvet. I feel like Willem Dafoe's scenery chewing is the one thing that kind of saves World at Heart for me. I don't, I don't completely dislike it. I just, I'm not as in love with it as I was when I first saw it. I just feel like revisiting it now. I'm like, oh come on. Yeah. I feel like I feel like this was Lynch just kind of about a little bit. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a very different tone than he will take in almost anything that he does outside of this. It's, I mean, it, despite the content matter, which is not really something it would be expected to be seen in a, a comedy, this is really just a comedy, a slightly black comedy, or a, perhaps a grey comedy. It's not mm-hmm. it's not so dark, but it, it's, it's a weird mishmash. It doesn't really work on a number of levels, as you say, but it, because it is not, it doesn't seem to be reaching for anything other than just being a distraction for a few hours, and so on yeah. that basis, it kind of it kind of gets away with it. But it's it's setting itself up a fairly low goal, and it probably it achieves that goal. But you know, it's not a goal worth shooting for. And and correct me if I'm wrong here, but actually, one of those trademark Nick Cage performances, which is actually quite a rubbish performance, yeah. but you kind of don't notice that it's rubbish because of the context of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, is it? It is not subtle. <laughs> no, but I mean, he does have a nice jacket, which is an expression of his individuality <laughs> and his and his belief in personal freedoms. Yes, uh, no daft. Uh, perhaps worth touching because you mentioned it a little bit there on the copious number of sex scenes that are in this film, mm. and it's not which made it incredibly difficult for me to watch my iPad sitting on a train <laughs> down to London next to a stranger the other day. Yeah, you carefully angle that one away and hope that it doesn't mm. get the reflection in the window, yeah. Mm. Uh, Annoying, annoyingly broad viewing angle on those iPad airs. <laughs> uh, yes, so there's a lot of it, and I think not so much with this film, but it Lynch does get a, a, a reputation for having sort of this eroticism in his works. Uh, this really isn't it. I mean, this is this is yeah. this is a very short step away from soft pornography uh, for for a lot of what it's doing. Uh, at least it's nothing like as uh, grim as the sex that occurs in something like Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by the nature of it, it's a bit less aggressive and a bit more. Bit happier and something it won't really return to until Mulholland Drive. But uh, his his use of sex is almost uh, it's kind of hard to take. I mean, obviously it's a very important part of human nature, but the way that Lynch uses it, I've always felt feels a little bit cheap. Uh, he will throw nudity and sex around in situations where I'm not really sure it added anything and it didn't really gain anything to the film. I feel like it it's almost feel, punctuation yeah. to signal the start of the next act, like yeah. in this. Very, very, very difficult to to 
to justify it. It's almost like part of the structure of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of... A lot of his works, he seems to be like, I like seeing tits, so let's put some tits in it. And I'm sure it, yeah. I'm sure it's nothing like as simple as that in Lynch's mind, but when you watch it on the screen, that often is what comes across. It's just that uh-huh. it's, it's gratuitous. And it doesn't really add anything to the film. And I feel it's just a little bit exploitative. Um, and it's not a crutch that he needs. Um, no, he can no. make us feel uncomfortable in a number of other ways without that kind of sort of discomfort as a viewer. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not a critical juncture of Wild at Heart, which is uh, too daft to really to have any sort of bearing on it. No, it's certainly one of his weaker films. I can't bring myself to dislike it, but it's by no means good. Uh, a soundly mediocre one, I think. If you're if you're if you're putting these in a list of order you want to see them, you can probably skip over this one without with no great uh, disillusion. Uh, after Wild at Heart, I think he would then take us on to Twin Peaks, which, to yes. my eternal shame, I've seen like the pilot in the first episode. After that, and never managed to get a, a conjunction of it being on streaming and me having time to watch it since then. Very much the same for me. What I remember of it in my formative years, I haven't caught a couple of episodes. I, I was yeah. quite mesmerised by it because, as I mean, when was that? So I was probably about eleven, twelve when that was yeah. doing rounds on television. I, I obviously was. You know, um, my mind was clearly blown by that kind of thing. But yeah, I didn't ever actually get around to watching the whole series. Yeah, no, that's something we will really probably have to uh, rectify and perhaps update this as it goes by. Um, unfortunately, Drew's couldn't uh, be here for this, but I know it's one of his, uh, it's his favourite uh, David Lynch work. So maybe we'll try and pump him for some information during the uh, the June commentary. Let's uh, waterboard him. Yeah, but uh, let's waterboard him for his opinions on June, which... <laughs> Well, this will be proven that that's not an effective way to get information. So, uh, But it does pass a couple of hours. Yeah, it's fun and it? it's a laugh. Uh, of course, we'll get a chance, hopefully, to see... Well, I would hopefully we'll reissue and reshow the original Twin Beaks because he's returning to this uh, well um, next year, it'll probably be, I would think. I think it's slated as 2017, but they're filming, yeah. they're, they'll be filming next year. Yeah, they've, they've finally settled the uh, disagreements that they'd had. Yeah, so a mere, uh, what's that, 20, 27 years later that'll be? Something like that, uh, yeah. For it to get another another series, so you're returning to that font, and I hope that to have a, a better opinion on it by that point, maybe we can share with you then. So that that takes us over uh, the, the Twin Peaks movie as well, Fire Walk With Me, this kind of uh, prequel, which... I've not watched because there didn't seem to be a lot of point watching a prequel to something I've not seen the actual no, likewise. series for, which uh, then takes you to 19, all the way up to 1997, wow, uh, with Lost Highway, a, a tale where the narrative is uh, very difficult to really relay without sounding like I've had a stroke. Uh, we, Would you describe it as fractured? That's one way of putting it, certainly. Um, very crudely fractured as well. Um, you're introduced to Bull Bull. Uh, Bill Pullman's Fred Madison, who's a a jazz musician. He's often seen freaking out in a jazz bar with his saxophone. Uh, or is it a trumpet? I forget. Um, anyway, he certainly freaks out. Uh, and then uh, he, his life is thrown into a bit of turmoil when uh, some unusual occurrences start happening. He gets mailed a video of uh, uh, someone, someone seems to have posted surveillance cameras in his house and things seem to be going incredibly strange for him. Um, then all of a sudden he's uh, he he finds himself framed for killing his wife, uh, Patricia Arquette, Renee Madison, which is something of an, something of a shock to him. 
So he goes to prison, and then one day he wakes up and he's a different character. All of a sudden, Bill Pullman's uh, turned into... Uh, what's, the, what's, the, uh, what's the name? Well, he's turned into Balthazar Getty, uh, Pete Dayton, uh, and at which point he's, to, to the mystification of all, all the guards, uh, prison guards who release him, uh, at which point we start a completely different arc. Uh, before he was mysteriously vanished and then showed up in a different prison cell, he was a uh, car mechanic. He then winds up going back to his old job, uh, taking care of the... Um, particularly he's taking care of the care of Mr. Eddie, uh, his uh, appears to be a mob boss, uh, Robert Logie's uh, character, uh, taking care of his car until he unfortunately falls uh, for Mr. Eddie's doll, who played by Patricia Arquette, uh, as Alice Wakefield, another completely different character. And this sort of fatal attraction, of course, brings him into conflict with Mr. Eddie. And then, after a while, things get even weirder when it sort sort of Mobius strips itself background to the start, and uh, for various reasons, Bill Pullman's character reasserts itself somehow, and uh, yeah, logic flies out of the window at that point, and you're left just kind of wondering what the hell is going on. And uh, all I remember of this film, bar the saxophone and the waking up as a different character, is at some point someone tripping up and impaling their head on the corner of a glass coffee table. Yes, yes, <laughs> amazingly. Uh, in in almost every sense of that word Uh, it is a puzzling film and tough to know exactly what to make of it notable for a Gary Pussy performance that in no way is uh, chewing the scenery which is unusual given what we've talked about Uh, another film with Henry Rollins in it can't can't get away from that but uh, there is something there's something to Lost Highway uh, that is if nothing else really interesting and not 100% 100% sure that it works for the same reason that you can, you can kind of see we'll be talking about Mulholland Drive very soon which is what we're trying to get to but there's a path going between Blue Velvet, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and Mulholland Drive is quite clearly the, the perfect destination for it and he's it, it, kind of triangulating in on that and it's almost there with Lost Highway but not quite it's again not quite bizarre enough consistently enough to have you in the sort of set to get your your brain into that sort of mood where you can accept things like characters waking up and becoming a different character without it just putting a real break on anything approaching immersion because it's another one of these things literally inexplicable Right, there is there is no explic to be had in this. Um, no, it is, it is, and because of that, it's very tough to take the rest of it remotely seriously. And in something like uh, Mulholland Drive, it's a lot of it, all the same criticisms would apply, but because it's done a better job of kind of suckering you into the logic of it, then you're not going to be you don't have the conflicting elements of both dream logic and actual reality logic conflicting with each other in quite the same way that you do with Lost Highway. Uh, Whereas it was a very minor element in Blue Velvet, and it didn't didn't hurt it too much, there's other problems with Blue Velvet, in this, the balance isn't quite right between that uh, that sort of dream logic and actuality. It just can't can't quite coexist in the same way that it can in Mulholland Drive, where when the the balance tips and different things happen in Mulholland Drive, it's much easier, I find, to go with the events of Mulholland Drive than it is with Lost Highway, even uh-huh. though in a, in a number of ways, say, ways they're kind of similar. Uh, it's not too dissimilar from the, the the overarching 
you know, a, a sort of a generalization of Mulholland Drive's plots, but it doesn't quite work so well here. Uh, it's not helped by the fact that it it's not switching between two particularly interesting narratives. It, the narrative in Lost Highway only becomes interesting when it starts putting in the more unorthodox elements, uh, the, the actual surrealism sections where it tries to link the two between these uh, these kind of mystery characters showing up with uh, you know ways to to apparently bend the laws of time and space <laughs> but uh, until these are the only bits that really give it a lot of interest the rest of it's a fairly common little tale that doesn't really go anywhere uh-huh. and that's a bit of a shame um, it's not I think his most successful element of it it's, it, it sits between Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive quite uncomfortably it's it's between two bar stools it's not quite sitting on anything and so it's falling on the floor <laughs> but Bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, can't really fault a lot of it. I mean, like, uh, not really made too much of a meal of it, but I mean, I think you can make a generalization to say that the oh. cinematography and all of it just works fantastic. Uh, looks really great. Soundtrack's very effective. He gets good performances out of everyone that's in his films, I think. Uh, some, some surprisingly good performances, but there's just nothing at the end of the day to back up this film. It's Bit of a bit of a downer for me. I didn't enjoy it quite so much. But you can we can see which direction he's heading in. Yeah. So following on from Lost Highway, uh, well, uh, Lynch was in discussions which which would eventually lead to Mulholland Drive, which was going to be a TV show uh, for a while before eventually becoming the film that we will see uh, talk about a bit later on. But in the same year as Mul. As that was kicking off, he also produced, uh, sorry, he directed the straight story, which is, uh, as kind of mentioned earlier, was often seen as a, his, as a, as a rebuff to, to people who think he's just directing, you know, these, these weird, out there, somewhat surrealistic pieces. He's just, here's a story that is entirely conventionally, uh, told and shot. Uh, some people still call it a surreal, road movie and it clearly isn't apart from the fact that the guy is taking a somewhat unusual mode of transport um, the the basics of it is you're introduced to Alvin played by Richard Farnsworth who is in, uh, an elderly uh, gentleman who in a mid-eastern town that would be I think he's in a I think he's in Iowa uh, he is uh, in a remote uh, part of part of the town, very rural, and he's informed that his brother, who he's been somewhat estranged from, hasn't seen in a good good many years, has had a stroke and decides that he will go off and see him. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer uh, in possession of a car. He, his eyesight's not good enough to, to pass the driving licence. So he decides that rather than do anything sensible like uh, take a bus, he is going to make his own way over there by getting on a uh, a ride on a lawnmower and uh, a trailer full of the essentials for the three week, I believe it wound up being, uh, journey for across the state lines to see his brother as he embarks on this little road trip, uh, leaving behind his, uh, his daughter who's, uh, perhaps a little bit, uh, but mentally challenged, uh, roles played by City Spacek. And along the way, he got a number of, uh, uh, interactions with people, who are either hitchhikers or people along the way who help him get through various situations. And really, it's an immensely charming film, in no small part because of Richard Farnsworth's performance, which is uh, uh, just endearing. He's the sort of slightly cantankerous old person that uh, I think we'd all love to be able to 
think we'd grow up into uh, rather than someone who's outright just crotchety for the hell of it. He's uh, he's just one of a one of one of those genuine characters. I think you would call him. He, he feels uh, feels quite real, and he gets some some real moments of uh, affection, particularly when he's talking to. Uh, sorry, real moments of emotional impact when he's talking about uh, his experiences during the war and things like that with a, a, a veteran he comes across in, in a bar in town, uh, a town he goes through. Really, there's not a great deal to the straight story. It, it's played uh, effectively, you know, very conventionally, and nothing like the... You can't level any of the same criticisms that we'd had over the previous uh, couple of Lynch films. It's uh, clearly his uh, most uh, traditionally told and shot uh, and structured film since Elephant Man. I would argue it's not quite as good as Elephant Man. The, the central story, while interesting, is nothing like as uh, intriguing as you get with Elephant Man. That said, it's still an incredibly enjoyable film, one which I uh, ashamed to be, I hadn't actually watched until a few days ago in the run-up to this, and I think I've been doing myself a great disservice. It's, uh, it's a really enjoyable uh, film to watch. Um, nothing particularly outstandingly strange happening in it. If you're talking about it in terms of Lynch films in the way that we kind of understand Lynch films to mean a cipher for you know mental things. Then this is this is not a Lynch film. It's a, a film that David Lynch happens to direct. But um, as with uh, the Elephant Man, he's just showing that he can do an incredibly good job with what you'd call conventional cinema. Uh, should he choose to do it, uh, this is again has all the strengths of Lynch's work. It looks uh, it looks really great. It's a very very well told story. Many great performances it's got out of people. Uh, and it's just a really enjoyable film to go through, to watch. Um, definitely recommended. Um, if you're looking for it, for a film that is, you know, Lynchian in the way that it has become an adjective, then this is not the film to go for. But I mean, it's Ooh. certainly a really great film that David Lynch has done. And so definitely recommended, although, you know, it's not perhaps the, the main thrust of what you would think of when you think about uh, a David Lynch film. No, and again, as with Elephant Man, I feel incredibly guilty for having sort of um, sidelined this one because it doesn't aspire to those traditional sort of Lynchian tropes. Yeah. I almost felt like I was doing a disservice to the man's the man's career by uh, taking time out to watch those. But, I mean, what a, what a silly thing that seems now because... Again, that's the mistake so many people make. Um, and really, David Lynch, as you say, is a very versatile director and just yeah. as just as capable at directing what I guess you could ostensibly describe as normal movies yeah. as he is these surreal, um, uh, you know, atmosphere pieces. So yes, I shall have to prioritise straight story as well. Yes, um, and as you mentioned, taking us then on to Mulholland Drive. I guess, in which a pair of young women, one an aspiring actress, Naomi Watts, and the other an amnesiac car crash survivor, Laura Haring, embark across Los Angeles on a quest to unravel the latter's identity. Mulholland Drive starts out as one thing and becomes quite another. The arcs of various incidental characters intertwine with those of the central pair to a point. That point being the point at which, in typical Lynchian fashion, (laughs) reality or what we have so far assumed to be reality, uh, begins to give way to the dreamscape as characters switch identities, surreal imagery begins to permeate, and mysterious hobos emerge menacingly from behind diners. <laughs> Mulholland Drive plays out very much like a, a like a mystery movie, and it's so hard to encapsulate, or sorry, it's so hard to describe what the appeal of this movie is. You kind of have to give over to it, and if you do, I feel like it's the apex of what Lynch has been building to all this while. 
I'm, it's the only Lynch movie that I've seen in the cinema, and I'm so very grateful for that um, because experiencing it up on the big screen, I I experienced something that I hadn't experienced before, and that was my senses, my brain in general, being effectively overridden um, and having a bank of switches flicked, and I had no longer any control <laughs> over my own, my own emotion or my own um, ability to sort of... Dis- you know, attempt to decipher any of this and just being swept along with it. It's, it's, I want to say it's the perfect encapsulation of, of what a Lynch film wants to be. Like, yeah. you can take elements from his other films up to this point and assemble them to Mulholland Drive, but it's the only film that, that has them all and where they play together so, um, so finely. And to, to describe it as a mystery is obviously doing a disservice, but like Lynch kind of wants you to treat it as such. He's, he's, I think he's, I want to say he's engaged in more discussion about on this film than he has any other. And I remember yeah. when it was first released on DVD, it came yeah. with a little hint sheet <laughs> saying like David Lynch's ten clues to un- unraveling the mystery uh, of Mulholland and, and Drive. Can, can we just say how tremendously useful they weren't in deciphering anything? To do oh, well, with this, is, Drive. this is exactly it. Yeah, you <laughs> if you if you take that at face value, then you've already lost the game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because honestly, David Lynch telling you he's got ten clues to unraveling the mystery of Mulholland Drive is like <laughs> someone handing you a tin opener and saying, "Open this tank with that." Yeah, I mean, um, there's, the, there's a strange bit of uh, filmmaking where you can have an unreliable narrator. This is the first film where you get an unreliable director as well. Yeah, <laughs> so. very much so. And again, like I mean, some of the some of the imagery in here is just as impenetrable as actually some of the stuff if we harp back to Eraserhead. Yeah, but it's not. It's it's leading you along and taking you for a ride, in a sense where a Razorhead was actually I felt it was trying to launch an assault on you. Um, Mulholland yeah. Drive wants you to come along for the ride. It's just kind of David Lynch isn't entirely sure where it's going either himself. It's the strangest beast to try and pigeonhole. Um, in fact, the, the, the moment at which you start to try and pigeonhole it again, you've completely lost. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly unusual film. Um, and it, if you're looking at it from a purely analytical point of view, it's subject to all the same criticisms I've been making about uh, Lost Highway mm-hmm. and uh, Blue Velvet. However, that gets overridden by the fact that this one works and other ones don't. Yeah, and it's, You feel it's, like you can make headway into this. Yeah, you feel like when you're watching this that you can almost get a handle on what's going on before yeah. the ground behind you shifts a little and bit. If, and then and you're, if you you're could away. only watch it enough times, you would get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I, mean, I think what helps no end is uh, the, I think, always underestimated performance from uh, Justin Theroux. Justin Theroux, yeah. Who, for... Essentially, that first that first half of the film is is your crutch into yep. leading you into the film, and I think it's it's very it's never really brought up often. But how important that role is because he's yep. he's going through the the first quarter of this film just as baffled as you are. He is absolutely and, <laughs> as baffled as you. So he just for anyone who hasn't seen the film, Justin Theroux plays a film director called Adam Kesher, who is auditioning for a role in his new movie, and around whom all of these sort of events begin to unfold, and he is. The the lead in here is that without his character, obviously, you would just be placed in this. You'd be placed in this increasingly bizarre series of events with no handle on what's happening. But he's there to hold your hand. And say it's okay, audience. I'm here with you. I don't <laughs> understand any of this either. Yeah. And that kind of gives you this little opening up until the point where obviously his character is is paid the same 
um, yeah. the same courtesy of the others in sort of switching roles or, or sort of almost becoming a completely different character, if, if not in name, then then in behaviour uh, later, yeah. on, later on in the movie, at which point you're kind of on your own, but there's no backing out by that point. Yeah, by that point, you've you've really been brought into the whole concept of what's going on here. You you you, by that point, you should really have. Well, you will have, think you have some sort of handle on how you can process this film before it is quite skillfully pulled away from you, um, and you are left kind of wondering what on earth's going on. And as you say, your your brain will have at that point gone uh-huh. and uh, and and stopped trying to work on the the purely analytical level, and it gets away with the the dreamlike assault that or that will uh, follow it. Yes, uh, and the final act of this movie is as baffling as anything he has done, and mm. it's testimony to like the, the film follows a fairly it's. It's got the most accessible learning curve of any Lynch film in its progress from sort of, you know, fairly... I mean, okay, the, the, the opening is shrouded in a bit of mystery. The behaviour of the main character, um, Laura Haring's character, is um, is a little bit oblique. Yeah, um, but, but you could, again, ascribable almost to logical events that have happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's sort of gradu- it's this gradual descent into Lynch- Lynchian madness. And when I went to see this film, um, I was it was with Drew, actually, and I think it was at the Fountain Park Cinema in Edinburgh. And we walked in and thought, oh, bugger, we've missed like the first couple of minutes of the movie. And we sat down and nothing was making any sense. But hey, it's a Lynch movie. I'm not <laughs> expecting it to make too much sense. Um, and after about 15, 20 minutes, all of a sudden, the credits rolled. And actually, we'd walked in at the end of the previous performance, and we thought, "Oh well, that's gone. That's gone and torn it now, hasn't it?" And so we sat there and waited for the start of the showing that we had paid to see. Um, and by the time we got round back round to the point at which we'd walked in the first time, we were none the wiser. <laughs> no, it made no difference that I'd seen that same piece of film just two hours before. It made no more sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> but yeah. I was so thoroughly entranced by it that it's it's almost like it gives you no choice but to like it. It's the closest thing I've experienced to um, a film being sort of like a drug-taking experience. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's the one film of Lynch's I think where he's, he's trying to build up this this other world narrative that he's kind of going with, it. and it's the one that actually can pull you along without having to drag you. Um, it, it, it's the one film where you actually want to follow along with it rather than have mm. to be have to kind of force yourself to go with it. And I also want to say it's it's it's, it's possibly his most cinematic movie as well, which yes. is which is bizarre because it started life as a pilot for a TV show. Yeah, I mean it certainly looks the best of any of his films that mm-hmm. I've seen. As you mentioned, the, the TV show it does show a little bit when you think about it as as that genesis. You there there are plot ends. Or the, well, sorry, there's avenues that the mystery could explore a la Twin Peaks where it, it, it's going to be looking at certain aspects of things which are kind of hinted at and then get kind of dropped some of the characters' motivations or their previous lives, things like that. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities for a mystery to evolve in this where you could quite easily see how this could have strung out into two or three series mm-hmm. of, of uh, uh, delving into these characters and the things around them and Maybe to an extent that that is a that's a weakness of it, where you see that some of those kind of get uh, bulldozed in, in its way to just uh, fit into the two and a bit hours that it takes up from from memory. Uh, 
but I don't think that really hurts it in the slightest when you actually sit down and watch it because no. it, uh, it all just flows so well, um, despite it being uh, arguably just as nonsensical as all the rest of it. Um, Absolutely. There's, there is, again, you can interpret this to mean as little or as much as you like. Um, uh, it's probably the one I'd, I'd support most, the kind of building of these elaborate uh, edifices of, mm-hmm. of critical things, but that's probably just because I like this one more. Yeah, uh, that's, it does. That's it, it, it does give you more of a foothold into that, though. And whether whether he's done that intentionally or whether that's mm-hmm. just a side effect, I'm not sure. But I I do feel like there must be at least half of a of a definite sort of conclusion to be made about the movie. I still haven't come across it yet. I mean, I've watched it goodness knows how many times now. And actually, one of the things I enjoy most about it, ironically enough, actually, even though I consider it to be the film that I I want to say I feel most likely to get to the bottom of if there is a bottom to get to. It's actually the one which I enjoy disengaging from the most and and just witnessing it as as an experience. And every time, every time I watch it, I see, I find something new in it and it hasn't failed me yet. I find something new every time I watch it and it's so Mm -hmm. rewarding, regardless of whether it makes any sense. It's so difficult to describe. I'm, uh, I can't articulate it. Yeah, I think it's certainly the film. Well, maybe not. You not even just of Lynch's career, but of any film that rewards repeat viewing more mm-hmm. than. Well, yeah, you just as the the most rewarding uh, on that basis. So that is very densely uh, structured. You can definitely see there's an, an awful lot of thought going into this one. Uh-huh. Quite what that thought meant is an entirely different thing um, and something that no one will ever, I, I suspect, ever get to the bottom of because even if Lynch came out with something that he claims was what he was thinking at the time, I'm yeah, sure you could, you'd have no you could, reason to trust him. Yeah, you, you could quite easily dismiss that and build, build up your own uh, edifice again. Um, that's, I... I, I I often have little time for people uh, putting too much in the interpretation of, uh, you know, symbolism and meaning on films. Uh, but this is one in particular is one that you could, you could build any number of ways. And I think it, it is strong enough that is based to support all of that. Uh, and that's probably mm-hmm. what makes it the, the most interesting of David Lynch's films. And certainly, the, the, in my view, the the best Lynchian uh, film by a long way. Uh, really, it's the only one I think that works. It's almost a fully. Lego set of insanity where you can kind of build whatever you want out of the pieces. Yeah, <laughs> and we should say at the same time, it's got all the all those hallmarks. It looks the best of any Lynch film. It has the best performances that he's yeah, got yeah. Out, of, uh, out of most of these actors. I mean, of course, Naomi Watts has gone out of a, a tremendous career from that from this, but. Um, you know, it's a great performance from Laura Haring, who's not really done anything comparable since. Are you suggesting uh, that in John Q with Denzel Washington, she wasn't? Uh, I am. I am. I am suggesting that. I know it's blown your mind, but yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, again, it's eight tremendous performances from even the the smallest uh, the smallest role on it. And we've uh, I've talked, of course, already about Justin Theroux's Rose roll, but uh, yes, it's the one Lynchian surreal scape that really works for me in a way that the, the others haven't. They're clearly all built towards this moment. I think this is the uh-huh. the final distillation of all that into one thing that really works uh, works incredibly well. Um, 
I don't think this was my first Lynch film. I'm sure I must have seen Dune and Elephant Man at least at some point before this. But it was oh, my fir- you must have done. You must uh, have done. But it was probably... You were, you were deeply into Dune before I had even yeah, started watching um, any Lynch, I think. It would probably have been at points in my uh, life where it was not really too fussed about learning the name of a director. Oh. However, it would have been, was a didn't quite have those uh, interests or capacity uh, faculties at the time. But certainly, this is the first of the oddball Lynch, if you like, uh, films that I've seen, and it's certainly the one that works by far the best. Uh, you can see elements and all the stuff that's gone before it that would lead to this film, but this is the one film that you really want to see. This is this is peak Lynch, in my estimation. Absolutely. The ne plus ultra of Lynch. And I think with the only film we've got left to discuss then is Inland Empire, which I haven't tackled yet, so I'll let you discuss that. Yes, um, I had been looking forward to Inland Empire, basically on the, on the rationale that, of course, I really liked Mulholland Drive. Um, but Inland Empire is a real disappointment for me. It's where to start with this film. Uh, it's... It's one of these films where, like Mulholland Drive, it's very difficult to really make a lot of headway into describing the narrative of it. I'm not sure how how much of a, a benefit that, that would going to be. It, it, in my mind, ploughs some very similar paths uh, to Mulholland Drive. You start off, it's return uh, to Laura Dern, uh, to Lynch's works. He, she's playing a an actress who lands a role in a film that was hoping to kind of kickstart her uh, faltering career. Uh, the director is played by uh, Jeremy Irons as Kingsley Stewart, uh, just just into the role returns as the co-star, uh, Billy Side at that point, I believe it is. Uh, they are informed as this film is shot that it uh, was it's actually a remake of a film that was a film that had been uh, produced previously but never released because of uh, an unspecified catastrophe that happens on the set. A uh, German film called Forty Seven, I think it was, um, and this is a remake, and the, which they'd somehow hidden from all the producer staff on it. And at some point, just after this, you start to get into a situations where Laura Dern's character of the actress becomes intertwined with the character that she's playing in the film, and it, it, at that point, uh, again, you get to the point where. Logic goes out the window and various realities, you get the same kind of thing that happened with Mulholland Drive. You get alternate interpretations of characters and, uh, you know, some of the characters taking on different, different roles, as you might have seen in, uh, Lost Highway. And it, it kind of remixes all of that stuff that's, that's gone before it. It continues following, largely following Laura Dern as the, the primary, uh, uh, protagonist and it, gets to a, a situation towards the end where everything kind of seems undone. There's some uh, other references to, uh, to Polish mythology going on throughout it that are uh, kind of strange, of as you would expect. Uh, it's it, it, In many ways, it feels an awful lot like a, a, a mix-up of... Uh, it's very, very clearly it's heavily influenced by Mulholland Drive, um, but with a few more elements of something like perhaps a Lost Highway kind of thrown into the mix as well. However, it doesn't really work. Um, unfortunately, this this kind of seems like a step too far. It's kind of it, it's almost like he's a retread of Mulholland Drive, but just not quite as good. Uh, it, it doesn't really work for most of the reasons I would say something like Lost Highway doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't do a particularly brilliant job of pulling you in. 
to to an extent that falls onto uh, Laura Dern's uh, character. She's the kind of one you're supposed to be kind of identifying with and then pulling through. But uh, the thing, she's just her character is not so well written or engaging, and, and she she feels she doesn't have the same sort of sense of confusion that uh, Justin Theroux's character had in Mulholland Drive to really give you anything to latch on to. So imagine, if you will, Mulholland Drive where the kind of switches occur without you having anyone to identify with and then you just sort of going, nope, at the point when things really sort of uh, interface with the fan. And that's kind of where you are with uh, Inland Empire. The other disappointing thing for me with Inland Empire is that it was the first film that uh, Lynch shot entirely in digital. Now, I am... Not someone who thinks that automatically, a la Quentin Tarantino, that digital is a bad thing. However, when you do it quite badly, it can be a bad thing. And Inland Empire looks disgusting. Really? Um, it is a really nastily shot film. Um, you know, the, the, the framing and all that is fine, but it just doesn't look nice. It looks like it was done on a cheap camcorder. Um, of course, it's it's knocking on a bit now. It's one of it's the most recent film we'll talk about, but it's still to two thousand and six. Uh, wow, that long ago. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, yes, but unfortunately, standard def digital video from two thousand and six doesn't has not aged particularly well. Um, certainly not in the way that uh, the the kind of more modern four uh, K cameras can can pull off. And this looks a bit camcordery in places, and yeah, not not great. Uh, so it, it looks kind of ugly for for points that kind of works when uh, it, it points Laura Dern's character is uh, kind of out on the out on the the gritty streets of Los Angeles and it kind of lends a nice air to that. But at other points, it, it's it just looks ugly. The the narrative itself just cannot stand up to the usual kind of scrutiny. But also it it's got the same kind of thing that happened in Blue Velvet, where there's moments that just occur that are just off the wall crazy uh, with no real explanation for either symbolically, thematically or narratively that, that kind of really justify it and, and it, yeah, that's a bit of a shame it's another one where there's a number of young nubile female characters that seem to exist largely just to show you their breasts at some point uh, they don't really seem to serve any other purpose. It's, uh, it's almost like Laura Dern goes back to a frat house at some point and uh, as they start talking about their sex life out of nowhere for no real reason. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a misfire. Uh, it, it, it's a de-evolution of everything that was so good in Mulholland Drive. It's it's much more shapeless. It, it has less of a point. Now, I know that's not the case that Mulholland Drive actually had a point, but it felt like it did. Um, it, it felt like Mulholland Drive was always going somewhere um, and it was always kind of driving towards one thing to me, whereas Inland Empire feels like it's going in multiple different directions at the same time and not really making a lot of progress in any of them. Uh, it was a real disappointment for me. It's, in my opinion, one of Lynch's weakest films. You know, nothing to do with the actors or actresses. It's, again, it's another clutch of really quite good performances, but there's just nothing there to to back up onto. It's very difficult to latch onto. Mm. Yeah, a, a real shame for me, a, a, a real downer, um, especially after the the excellence of Mulholland Drive, which uh, remains uh, the the best of uh, Lynch's. Uh, certainly, it was more uh, more dreamlike stuff. Yes. So here's a question for you, right? I suppose before we we sign off. For a director who's held in such high esteem, now that we've actually gone back and reviewed his 
So, to use the word again, but I do love the sound of it, his oeuvre. Is David Lynch actually one of the great American directors? Yes, um, because I think greatness does not just rely on the eventual output. It's uh, all of the the things that have led up to it and the, the craft mm-hmm. that he's shown and the, the imaginativeness that he's shown that has become... Uh, so influential. I think it's been influential for other people as well. I'm sure a lot mm. of people uh, watch Lynch and are inspired by that to create their own works. Uh, He's defined himself as something very singular. Yes, yes. He is one of the greats because even if you don't like an awful lot of his films, there's no way to argue that they are not individual and distinctive. Uh-huh. Um, and for me, that is that is something to applaud uh, and to be uh, to be proud of. If I was if I was David Lynch, I would be proud of that. Um, he's done a lot, a lot of uh, things that no one else has done or has even thought of or would even think to think of. Um, and for that a reason alone, because he's been able to to see these things, visualize them, get them shot, and have them put out there in a way that a lot of people will like. And I'm you know for all of our interpretations, we've been we've largely been in agreement. But I'm sure there are a number of people who will. Claim that Blue Blue Velvet is actually the the fantastic film, the actual masterpiece of Lynch's and Mulholland Drive is dreadful, or any other combination of the things that we've talked uh-huh. about. Um, and it, because of that, because he's so many things to so many people, that is what makes him such an interesting director and such uh-huh. an interesting uh, talent to have uh, both writing and directing. I mean, he will provoke the kind of discussions that no one is going to have about, say, Brett Ratner. Uh, who's my who's my go-to connection of someone who's not really a bad director, but he has really no stamp that he puts on anything. He's just someone uh-huh. who can point the cameras in the right direction and keep things more or less on track. But David Lynch is a real auteur. He's someone who's got very distinctive goals and ideas in mind for his films and executes them quite well for the most part. And that is something to to applaud because it's not something you can get an awful lot of and it's certainly nothing in the studio system these days that seems to be mm-hmm. uh, likely to occur. So He will yeah. certainly not be pigeonholed as anything other than himself. Exactly. Mm, nice. Oh, well, I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we took the time to uh, to go back and review Lynch's back catalog. I've quite enjoyed talking about it, Scott. Yes. Good. That was the plan. Yes. Excellent. And we <laughs> hope you've enjoyed listening cool. as well. That also was the plan. I hope this has worked. And if not, well, thank you for sticking to us uh, with, uh, what, an hour and a half or so of uh, conversation about them. Very kind of you. Yes. Yeah, so I guess that more or less wraps it up for this episode. Uh, We will return, as we mentioned, with our June podcast. Uh, We'll give you that in another 10 days or so. It should be up on the 10th. Until that time, if you would like to, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today, why not tell us? You can hit us up on Twitter, um, that's at FudsOnFilm. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm. If you'd like to leave a message, uh, a review on iTunes, please, please do. But uh, if you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. That's fine. We won't care too much. We'll just be very sad about it. Well, we won't send the boys around. We'll just cry deeply. Yes, uh, or indeed, uh, email us, podcast at fudsonfilm.com. But if you don't want to do any of that stuff, then just hang tight. We'll have another podcast for you quite soon. Chill out, man. Uh, until, <laughs> but until that time, uh, I will bid you adieu. I have been Scott Morris, and my friend over there has been Craig Eastman. I have all day. Farewell. Bye. <laughs>